So we've been uh, doing this series we've called Pray Like Jesus, where we've been specifically looking at the book of Luke, times when Jesus is praised in the book of Luke. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 6, but it's no accident that we're looking at Jesus praying, we're peeking in on his prayer life in the book of Luke. Prayer is an important theme for Luke. As a matter of fact, as we consider the other gospel writers, we see that Mark mentions prayer 13 times, which is still a significant number. As we look at Matthew, he mentions prayer 17 times. But when we come to the gospel of Luke, we read about prayer and Jesus praying and teaching on prayer 24 times. And then when we consider that Luke also wrote the book of Acts, we can count those and see how important prayer was to him. Because in Acts, it's 29 times that Luke talks about prayer or gives us a peek into people praying. And perhaps what's more important than the number of times uh, Luke describes or talks about or gives us a glimpse at Jesus praying or teaching about prayer is this theme, this sub-theme within prayer that Luke time and time again in, in the Gospel of Luke and in the books of Acts, he constantly shows us Jesus and church leaders praying at significant intersections, when, when they're on the, the, the brink of new ministry, when there's changes happening. This is a theme for Luke that it's important that we pray when major decisions need to be made, when there's significant things happening. So Luke shows us 13 times, at least as by my count, um, that, that Jesus was praying. And, uh, and last week was kind of a summary of all of those. Do you remember the verse from last week? Jesus was often withdrawing to lonely places and praying. And so we see in the book of Luke that Jesus prays in gardens. He prays on seashores. He prays on the mountaintops. Sometimes he prays alone. Sometimes he takes others with them to help them grow in their prayer life. But it's clear as we read the gospel of Luke that prayer was important to Jesus. He prayed as a regular pattern of keeping in touch with his heavenly father. He prayed prior to making big decisions and, and prior to facing big events. And that's actually where we find Jesus us in today's passage in Luke chapter 6, we, we find Jesus praying before he has to make uh, a big decision. And, and not only that, but in the context of some major events or major movements that are happening in his ministry. So I'm going to read from Luke chapter 6 if you'd like to follow along. And uh, kind of like last week, this week's passage really only has one verse that talks about Jesus praying, but that's okay. The rest is context and that's helpful. And so what I'm going to do is ask you to have a pen or pencil handy. It's going to be the first verse we read. And so I'm just going to have you make a few notes in verse 12, and then we'll move on and read the rest of this paragraph. Okay, so Luke chapter 6, verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside. Let's go ahead and underline that word mountainside. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. Will you circle that word pray, please? And he spent the night praying. Go ahead and circle praying to God. Okay, so you've now circled twice in this one verse the word pray, yes, right? Now let me ask you a question. Why do you think that Luke said twice in this verse 
that Jesus, that this was about prayer, that he went out to pray, that he was praying. Wouldn't it have been easier if Luke had simply written, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside and spent the night praying to God. Couldn't he have cut some of the words and made it shorter and easier to write? And why twice does he mention prayer? You know, what's interesting, um, Matthew and Mark both record what comes next, and we're going to read that in a minute. Matthew and Mark both record that, but it's only Luke that tells us that Jesus spent all night praying before the events of the verses we're about to read. As a matter of fact, Luke's the only one who records that Jesus even prays about it. Okay, what, what's going on here? Again, this is a major theme for Luke. This is something that he constantly comes back to in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts. Jesus and the early church spend considerable time in prayer at significant junctions. I mean, in general, but specifically at significant junctions, Jesus' reflex and the reflex of the early church was not, let's just say a prayer, but let's pray. And something significant is about to happen here. Let's see what that is. Verse 13. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, who he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, this next little bit is just for the other Bible nerds in the room who like to geek out on interesting things. This, uh, this list of disciples, of apostles, is, is mentioned four times, or it's written four different times in the New Testament. Matthew 10 uh, two through four. It's in Mark three sixteen through nineteen. Of course, here in Luke we just read it, and then it's again in Acts one thirteen. Now, what's interesting is that none of those two lists are identical. Not even not even when Luke writes it twice, once in Luke and one. I mean, even those lists are are different the way that they're put together. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to doubt the truthfulness or the veracity of the Bible. For example, as we look at these lists in those different places, Peter. Simon, sometimes called Simon, but Simon Peter is always listed first in all four lists. And in all four lists, Judas Iscariot is always listed last. Well, except the book of Acts because he's already dead at that point. Okay, as you look through the list, it's interesting, there's always a breakdown. There's, there's within the list, there's four lists of three names, and each of those lists always starts with the same name. So like I said, Peter is always first. He always leads off group one. Um, Philip leads off group two. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, always leads off group three. There's some, some, just some fascinating things that have really nothing to do with the sermon, but um, I was nerdy down on them, and I thought maybe there'd be some other Bible geeks here who would go, you know, that's kind of fascinating. Maybe we should look into that more. But let's get back to the point. Prayer, <laughs> I don't know who laughed, but thank you. <laughs> Prayer is a major emphasis in Luke's gospel. We constantly see Jesus praying. 
And one of the themes that Luke constantly comes back to in regards to prayer, the way I've worded it for today, is major movements merit major prayer. Major movements merit major prayer. If you like the repetition of the letter M, thank Pastor Joel, he always told me, you, you got to do alliteration. Major movements merit major prayer. And so as we look through this passage and understand what it means for us in our prayer life, there's an underlying idea here, really with this whole series, but especially today, the underlying idea is here we have Jesus, the Son of God. The Son of God, or God in the flesh, felt it was significant to spend extended periods praying to the Heavenly Father to know His will. If, the Son of, if that was the posture of the Son of God, that there are times when I need to clear my schedule and I need to be uncomfortable, and I need to do things that are difficult and, and I'm not prone to do in order that I can hear and connect uh, with the Father and hear His voice. If that's how the Son of God felt, how much more should we, the children of God, do the same thing? See, Jesus spent significant time praying here. And what I want to do today is I want to look at the, the major movements that I think caused him to pray. And then I want to talk about major prayer as we see it in the text, some truth that, that I believe Luke's, Luke teaches us here. Let's start with major movements. I, I'm going to suggest that there were four major movements happening that drove Jesus to pray through the night. And the first one that, that I'd like for us to look at um, is that there was success to deal with. There was success that had to be dealt with. Now, as we think about what was happening before Jesus spent the night in prayer, uh, I want us to kind of rewind a little bit, and I want us to catch that Jesus was having a significant amount of success in his ministry. As a matter of fact, if you flip back, it may just be one page in your Bible. I'm, I'm not sure, but if you go back to last week's passage in Luke chapter 5, you'll see a string of success that Jesus has. Last week, we saw that he healed the leper with two words and one touch, and the guy was made clean, right? Well, if you continue to move on through the text, just kind of scan with me, what else do you have? Jesus heals a man with leprosy, um, and then you've got this, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. So you, know, you may remember that story. Um, a guy is paralyzed. His friends are like, Jesus can fix this. But they can't get to Jesus, so they take him up on the roof. They, they dig out a hole, and they drop the guy on his mat in front of Jesus. Do you remember this story? And what does Jesus do? He says, get up, take your mat, go home. And the guy leaves the house walking came in from a stretcher from, a, from the ceiling, leaves the house walking. So Jesus healed a, a paralyzed man. And, and as we continue to read through uh, the, the gospel of Luke here, um, the next heading in my Bible says, Jesus calls Levi and eats with sinners. So here a tax collector decided to follow Jesus and then throws a party celebrating what Jesus is doing in the ministry, uh, you know, the effectiveness of his ministry. And and as we continue to read, the next heading doesn't give it all away, but as you read through that passage, you see that Jesus heals a man who has a shriveled hand. I don't know what that means other than the man's hand was deformed and Jesus fixed it and made the man whole again. 
these things are some interesting, some significant successes. And, and then if you were to go to Matthew and Luke and, and look at the things that they have surrounding this story or this account that we just read, Matthew um, talks about a, uh, Jesus raising a young girl from the dead and healing a woman who no other doctors could heal. Um, he he uh, talks about two blind men who Jesus gave back their sight and a mute man who was able to speak after he encountered Jesus. As a matter of fact, listen to how Mark kind of summarizes what's happening at this point. This is in Mark 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him, to Jesus, from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions around, across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. He had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. So I would suggest that one of the things that drove Jesus to this intentional time of prayer, this all-night prayer vigil, is the success that his ministry was encountering and experiencing. Now, you might think in success we can rest easy. Obviously, God is pleased. What, what do we have to pray about? I would suggest that Jesus knew what we would, we would do well to get a hold of. And that's that success can be the most potent or the most lethal drug that Christians can encounter. Success in our, endeavor, in, in our endeavors can be one of the most destructive forces we face, which I know sounds crazy, right? We live in a capitalist society where, where we want to succeed. We want to have success. And I'm telling you that that can be destructive. Well, it can be. Because too often when we experience success, this, uh, this enemy of man's soul begins to take root. Pride, Scripture calls it. Now, scripture is pretty clear about pride. One thing that comes to mind is James says, God opposes the proud. Success can become a lethal drug because in it, pride can grow and that pride often drives us away from a dependency on God. Now, I probably don't need to give you specific examples you could probably, most of us, think back through our past and reflect, say, on a church who was going like gangbusters. They were the hot place in town. Everybody wanted to be there. They had great music and a great preacher and programs for all ages. And then something happened and the church implodes. How does a church go from success to implosion? Or, or, or maybe not even a church, maybe just individuals. Maybe this is your story or you know someone who was successful. They were rising through the ranks at work. They were, uh, you know, they were good looking and well loved. And then they went and they did something absolutely ridiculous and it all fell apart. I would suggest it's because when we are successful, 
we are most prone to those things that God opposes, that God dislikes. We think that we can make our own decisions. After all, look where I got me. And we lose sight of the fact that we didn't, I didn't get me there. We didn't get us there. God was doing a work that we were asking him to do. But success leads to pride too often. Success can become a major movement in anyone's life. And, and, and I think that there's a sense here Jesus encountered some success. He was doing what God had sent him here to do and he was doing it well. And so he knew that he needed to make sure his focus was on the one who gave him the success, not on the success itself. And the only way for him to do that was to deny himself and to spend extended time in prayer. With success comes not only the risk for destructive pride, but every time, 100% of the time, when someone faces success, they also begin to experience criticism. And Jesus, too, was facing opposition. I think this was the second major movement we see happening in the text. He had opposition to face. As a matter of fact, the gospel writers don't hide this from us at all. This is what I love about Scripture. It's always honest. Notice uh, what they write. I'm going to put it on the screen, I think. Yep, there we go. The Pharisees were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Luke also writes, the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. And we're not talking about giving him flowers and, and cards, right? Um, Matthew says, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves about Jesus, this fellow is blaspheming. Next slide. Matthew says, but the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, Mark says, and by the way, when you're looking for a reason to accuse someone, you'll always find one, whether it's legitimate or not, because once you're, once you're convinced they need to be accused of something, it's not a far leap to see things that are happening that they ought to be accused for. Mark 3, 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'm much more likely to spend extended times in prayer when I'm facing opposition than I am when I'm dealing with success. <clears throat> but clearly, Jesus was facing opposition here. The, the very people who he had came to help were opposing him. And I think the, the, perhaps the question for us, based on Jesus' example here, is, is, um, and our human nature, you know, I, I, again, probably like me, you're more willing to pray when you're facing opposition. So I don't think the point is that we pray. I think we instinctively get that as believers when we're facing opposition. The point maybe is how we pray. Let me suggest to you three things I've learned and am learning. I shouldn't say I have learned. I continue to have to relearn them about how to pray when we're facing opposition. First of all, pray that you will change. When I'm facing opposition, my first prayer needs to be, God, will you help me to change? Because so often the people who oppose us, although they may be wrong and overboard and have gone too far, there's often at least a kernel of truth in what they're saying. And so when we pray in the midst of opposition, we need, I need to pray, we need to pray, okay, God, 
will you help me to change so that I can glorify you, so that I can continue to grow in the image of Jesus Christ? Secondly, uh, I think the second way we need to pray, and, and this also is scriptural, is pray that they, your accusers, your opposers, your opposition, pray that they will change. I mean, we see this throughout the book of Psalms. David is constantly praying, God, would you open their eyes and would you close their mouths? That's the Earl version. God, would you open their eyes to what's really happening and would you close their mouths? Break their teeth. I mean, David says that. So first, pray that you would change. Secondly, pray that that your opposers, your opposition would change. And, And third... Pray that God would give you the wisdom to know which to pray when. Pray that God would give you the wisdom to know, is this an issue in me that needs to change? Or is this an issue in them that is coming up because of spiritual issues or stuff in their past or that's really not about me? Pray that God would give you the wisdom to know the difference. Regardless, when we face opposition, that is a time of major movement in our lives. It can can stop us in our tracks. It can uh, send us in a new direction. Or it can like harden our countenance and it can make us keep moving in the same direction we were because we believe we would only face opposition if we were doing the right thing. I mean, opposition can do all kinds of things, but the decision on how we respond to it, whether we stop, whether we go a different direction, whether we keep going the way we were, that decision needs to be made in prayer. Jesus was facing opposition, and he spent significant time praying. I would suggest the third major movement happening here is a decision to make. A decision to make. Now, this is the most obvious one. I almost started with this one because I think the text makes it so clear, right? You look in your Bible, and the heading says what? Say it out to me. The 12 apostles, or Jesus chooses the 12 apostles, or something to that effect. And and you read one verse, and then the next, like, what, three or four are all about the apostles that he chose. It's pretty clear that Jesus spent the night praying, at least in part, about this decision he had to make. Now, we've got to understand, when it says Jesus called his disciples to him, chances are there were hundreds of people who came up onto that mountainside. The disciples at, at this point in Luke, the disciples are those who are following Jesus. It's, it's the mass, it's the crowd who have set aside you know, everything else in order to be where Jesus is. He calls up the disciples and he appoints 12 apostles. These are the men who are going to carry the mission forward. These are the men who are going to pick up where Jesus leaves off in a couple of years. And he knows that. These, he, he doesn't just choose 12 men who are the smartest or the best looking, who are the wealthiest, who have been around the longest, who have the loudest voices. Jesus understands that the 12 men he's selecting are the, are the, the shoulders, the backs, the feet, the hands who will carry forth this mission of seeking and saving the lost, of glorifying God throughout the earth, of of doing everything they could to bring every person into a relationship with Jesus Christ. He knew that this was a significant matter. It wasn't just choosing his best buds. This is how church leaders are always, 
always viewed in Scripture as men and women charged with moving the mission of Jesus Christ forward. That's not just pastors in Scripture. That is pastors, but not just pastors in Scripture. All leaders who the church invites into positions of authority and responsibility, into roles of leadership, are seen as men and women who have to, who are called by God to help the mission move forward. Which is why Luke goes to great lengths throughout Luke, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts to show us that Jesus and the early church spent significant, intentional amount of times praying about who the next leaders will be. Matter of fact, uh, it's on the screen. There's some references from Acts. These are just a few that came to mind uh, about time when the church said, we need some leaders, let's pray. Now, if I could, there's a very direct application for those of us who call Beulah home. In seven weeks, Beulah Missionary Church, we will gather together after worship. We'll go down to the gym. We'll have a dinner. And then we'll spend some time discussing and voting on what happens next. We'll vote on the budget for 2020. We'll cast our ballots regarding who should step into positions of leadership. None of that's done in a vacuum. The the current leaders have done a whole lot of work to lead us to that point. A whole lot of prayer and discernment has gone into these things already. But as a congregation, we have the final say. Far be it from any of us to walk into that annual meeting in seven weeks not having read the materials that we're given. In a few weeks, we'll give you bios on all the people that have agreed and been asked and been agreed to serve in positions of leadership. We'll give you the budget. We'll give you reports from the staff and ministry. I mean, we'll give you a, a whole slew of stuff to read. Far be it from us to walk into that meeting without having read that. But more importantly, without having prayed We ought not select any church leader without having spent significant time praying. Not just God help me to check the right box. Jesus and the early church spent significant time praying about new church leaders because they understand the significance of church leaders who work to move the mission forward. Um, This major decision was the third movement. And then the fourth, I would say, is work to be done. Work to be done. Notice what happens after Jesus chooses the 12. We didn't read it, but it's the next section in Luke 6. It's actually the rest of Luke 6. Jesus and the 12 go down the mountain. Jesus um, heals more people. And then he teaches them the basic of the Christian life. We call it the Sermon on the Plain. It's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. It's like the core of Jesus' teaching on what it means to be a follower of Christ, a citizen of the kingdom of God. It, it, it seems that Jesus knew that his life and ministry were at a crossroads here, that, that, that this was the point where there was only going to be more and more work to be done, only more and more ministry to be had. And so Jesus said, I've got to pray. I've got to spend more time praying because there's more work to be done. There's more ministry to be administered. 
You know, if I'm to be honest, and those, those of you who know me the best, <laughs> I don't even have to tell you this, this is a major weakness of mine. You see, when I know there's work to be done, the last thing I want to do is talk about it to anyone, to God or to anyone, any human being. I was taught as a kid by my dad who had a crazy work ethic. The only way work gets done is by work, right? Betty, you and me talking isn't going to get any work done. And so if there's a meal to be made, someone needs to make the meal. Someone needs to do the work. And I love you, Betty. Thank you for letting me say your name. I have this, this unhealthy tendency when there's work to be done to get to the work. I'm slowly learning that the first work that needs to be done is this work. I need to spend time talking to the Father because the work that I see that needs to be done may not be the work that the Father sees that needs to be done. You know, Martha, Martha, you're upset and worried about so many things. I've got to do this work. And then as a leader, but I would suggest that maybe this isn't just for leaders, I've got to do this work too. I've got to be able to, to, to talk to other people and make sure that we're all moving the same direction, that we all have the same idea of what needs to happen in order for the work to get done. We do more and we accomplish more when the relationships are working I think Jesus spent time praying because he needed to make sure that the work that he saw that needed to be done was what the Father saw that needed to be done. And then clearly he came out of that and he established relationships with men who would help him to do the work. Jesus could have skipped the all-night prayer vigil and gone down the mountain and been healing people and teaching them then, but he couldn't. He needed to make sure that he was doing what God wanted and needed to make sure he had the people that God wanted him to have to do the work. There may have been other major movements. These are the ones that are clearly in the text. There was probably other things going on in and around Jesus that the text doesn't make clear. And there certainly are other major movements in our lives, things that we're dealing with that merit significant extended prayer. But let's set the major movements aside for a moment, and let's look at what Luke tells us about this idea of major prayer. Real quickly, first of all, major prayer is defined by peace, not time. How do I know when I've, when I've done major prayer? Well, you don't find it by looking at your watch. You find it based on the amount of peace that you're experiencing. Now, I, I, I could understand the sense that we would look to the text and say, well, it's got to be about time, right? This was major prayer because Jesus spent all night praying. I mean, that's pretty significant. That's pretty major. You know, it's interesting, though, that Luke is the only one that records that Jesus spent all night praying. It's also interesting that this is the only place in the Gospel of Luke where Luke writes that Jesus had an all-night prayer vigil. Luke often records that Jesus got up early and went out to pray, or that he stayed up late praying. This is the only place that I could find where Jesus prayed all night, through the night according to Luke or any of the gospel writers. As a matter of fact, if you cast the net bigger in the whole New Testament, Matthew through Revelation, nowhere does anybody else talk about an all-night prayer vigil. 
At least that I could find. It might be there. I, I could miss it. I think we should be careful about making a one-time experience prescriptive as opposed to descriptive. Luke describes what Jesus did not to say, Beulah, 2019, you should spend all night praying before your next major decision. Major prayer isn't about time. It's about peace. You see, God is the God of peace. And so we can be reasonably sure that when we have a peace about that for which we've been praying, that we've experienced, we've been given what God needs us to have. Major prayer is about the peace I receive, not about the time it takes to get it. There's not scales in heaven that, you know, we have to pile so many minutes of prayer on before they tip and then God answers it. That's not how prayer works. Prayer is about coming before our heavenly father who says, come to me and I'll give you what you need. I'm here to help. I want to offer you the grace and the mercy that you need if you will come and ask. You see, peace is the byproduct of time with God. And so we know we've spent time praying when God gives us peace. Now, peace is different. There's, there's different kinds of peace. Pardon me if you'll, if you'll uh, give me just a moment to talk about this. Um, there's different kinds of peace. Let me illustrate it like this. For several months, I've been praying about something significant here at the church that I think has incredible import for our future. And when I started praying about it, I was praying in a specific way. Pardon me for being vague, but I was praying in a specific way. And, and I just, it, like, I literally felt like my prayers were bouncing off the ceiling. Like, I, I just didn't feel like they were going. There was no peace coming. And eventually I kind of sensed the Holy Spirit started to say to me, it's good that you're praying about that thing, but why don't you pray this way? Well, Okay. And so I did. I, I shifted my prayer. I still was praying about this major thing that I think has significant importance for us. But I started praying about it in a different way. And immediately, I found peace. I mean, like, like the first time I prayed about it, God's peace. Sometimes peace is a restful peace. And we're just like, all right. Everything's going to be okay. God gave me assurance as I prayed that everything's going to be okay. Praise God for restful peace. Sometimes God's peace is what I call resolute peace. And that's not that I walk away from prayer going, everything's going to be okay. But I walk away going, I don't maybe fully know or like or understand God's will for this, but I believe this is God's will, and so that's what I'm going to pray about. And I walk away going, that's God's will. And so I'm going to be it resolved. I'm at peace. We're going to talk more about that resolute peace in a few weeks because we actually see it in the life of Jesus. But I would suggest that major prayer is about peace, not about time. Secondly, I would suggest that Luke gives us a hint that major prayer is aided by location. Major prayer is aid, aided by location. I had you underline the word mountainside, right? In, your, in verse 12, I asked you to underline that. Because I think that's a significant detail. Luke was telling us that Jesus did what Jews did. Jesus, when Jesus had major prayer, significant prayer, he went to the significant place that Jews went to when they prayed. We see it going all the way back to Moses, if not further. When Moses was facing major movements, 
God called him to a mountaintop, mountainside to pray. When Moses needed new leadership, he prayed to God on a mountain. We see it in the book of Psalms, and the psalmist continually write about mountains as places where God's security and, and preeminence and, and permanence is experienced. The Old Testament prophets, too, talk about the mountains. They, they, they project the mountains as places where God reveals himself with stunning clarity. Luke says that Jesus went on a mountainside to pray because that's where people in Jesus' day and in that part of the country, that's where they prayed because that's where people encountered God. I don't want to take this too far. I don't want to overstep, but I would like to say that this is one of the reasons that you've heard us talk about kind of reviving this, this altar ministry. And we've invited you to be part of that. Because through the years, numerous men and women and teenagers and, and even children have knelt at these altars or at these front pews and have encountered God in a way that, that they didn't expect, they, they didn't anticipate. It's not that you can only pray here at the front of the sanctuary, at the front of this sanctuary. You can pray anywhere. I mean, Paul's clear about that. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. That means wherever you're at, pray. But there's something about going a place where God has shown himself time and again. And going to that place saying, God, would you reveal yourself to me? Would you open my ears and open my heart and open my hands? Major prayer is aided by location. And finally, major prayer does not always result in success. Major prayer does not always result in success. And with two words... I can convince you of that, I believe. Those two words are Judas Iscariot. Think about this for a minute. Jesus spent all night praying. At the end of the night, he called his disciples to him, or in the morning, he called his disciples to him, and he selected 12 who would carry the mission forward. And he chose Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Let this sink in. Judas Iscariot was an answer to Jesus' prayer. Now make no mistake, Jesus didn't blindly choose Judas. Not at all. John in chapter 6 verse 64 says very clearly, Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. Jesus chose Judas knowing that Judas would one night kiss him on the cheek and Jesus would be arrested and falsely accused and crucified. But he still chose Judas. And I don't know, Luke doesn't say this. I wonder if Jesus had to pray all night because he knew what Jude, who Judas was and what Judas was going to do and he didn't want to do that. I don't know. I don't know. But did it take him all night because submitting to God's will on this one was maybe the most difficult submission yet? Luke doesn't say, but I can feel that. You see, just because we spend time praying hours at a time or years at a time, doesn't mean that it's always going to go the way that we want it to. doesn't mean that we're going to find success the way that we hope to. 
But the issue with prayer, we've seen this time and time again throughout this series, and we'll continue to see it. The issue with prayer is not that it's a tool to ensure my success. I would say instead of a tool, prayer is a a prayer of glasses that help us to see God's will. Prayer is a harness, if you will, that helps helps us to move in accordance with God's will, where he would have us go to submit to his leadership, his direction. The greatest issue at the heart of prayer isn't the request or the concerns. It's not what I want and what I need. The greatest issue at the heart of prayer is the lordship issue. Who's in charge here? Because if I come to prayer and the only good thing that can come from prayer is me getting what I want, God moving the way I want him to move, when I want him to move, I've not prayed. I've not prayed. I've talked. I've thought. I've maybe begged. But I haven't prayed. The most significant issue in prayer is who's in charge. Am I willing to submit my will even as I pray and bring my needs and my requests and my ideas? Am I willing to submit all those to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Am I in charge or is God in charge? Because if I'm praying and I'm refusing to, to, to not be in charge, then I'm not really praying. I'm not really bringing my needs to God. I'm just kind of showing him what they are. Prayer has significant import for the Christian. I believe prayer changes things. I believe that prayer can even, and we can get bogged down in the theological fine points here, but I, be, I do believe that prayer can change God's mind or, or, or the direction that God was going to go. But only only when it's done from a posture of bowing to his lordship, of saying, you're God, I'm not. This is what I think I need, but you do, and I'll do what you say should be done. Prayer doesn't always lead to success, or at least not success the way we see it and define it. Sometimes prayer ends, by all measures, quite disastrously on this side of eternity. But when we've submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that's okay. Because we trust him. Now here's the deal. I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know what major movements you're facing in life. Maybe some of these that we've talked about, success, opposition, a major decision, or, or work that needs to be done. Maybe other things are going on right now, and, and you're just at a, a point where you need to pray. I'm going to ask our musicians to come forward, and we'd like to give you the opportunity to do that. The, the altar's at the open or front. You can kneel here. You can sit on the front row. You can kneel at the front row. You can come and stand. Uh, the important thing is that you pray. Or maybe you're here, and it's not even about a major movement. Maybe for you, all this talk of the lordship of Jesus Christ has you squirming because you know that there's an area in your life where... It's just so difficult that you haven't gotten off the throne yet. And you know the Holy Spirit is speaking to you now, saying, it's time. 
stand up so I can be seated there. I want to be Lord of your life. I'd invite you to come and pray. That starts in prayer. It's continued in prayer. That's where God does his work in us. Or maybe for you, it's not anything major like either of those. You just want an opportunity to pray. I'd invite you as we sing to come and pray. No one's going to bombard you and try to counsel you. This is a time for you to come and be alone with the Lord. But as we sing, crown him as we sing about his lordship. Would you come and meet me here and let's pray together. Now's the time. Let's pray.